Well, I um, once again just like to welcome you guys here. And uh, for those of you who are listening online right now, um, some of you guys have already left and, and gone home, and um, we miss you already. That being said, we are in the book of Amos. And I, uh, we're going to start, this is part three of our series in Amos. We're going to continue our journey. We're going to pick up in chapter three. I, I wish I could give you guys the, the lengthy introduction that we did in part one of this series, but for the sake of brevity, I, I just, I'm not afforded that time. But that sermon is online, part one, if you want the, the full introduction. But this is what I will say. Amos comes on the scene around 760 BC. He shows up at a time when the covenant people of God have been experiencing much peace and much prosperity. He shows up and for the last 40 years there's been a, an economic boom. Times are good. There's peace. It is, as I've stated throughout the series, a golden age for Israel and Judah. But despite things going so well, God is not happy. As we've discovered, while things are going well for the people, they have deviated from the path of instruction set before them. The, the path that is God's way. They've left that path. Even though religious activity has increased in the land. The problem is just religious activity. And so this is where we pick up. Amos has come, especially in part one of the series in chapter one, he pronounced indictments on all the nations surrounding Israel and Judah. And instead of learning... Instead of getting their act together, they haven't. They've seen Amos pronounce these judgments against the other nations, and yet they're just as guilty as them. And that's where we pick up today in chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word. Hear this word. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. Now he's speaking here to Israel, that is the ten northern tribes. You may remember from, from part one we talked about the split after King David, excuse me, after King Solomon, after he died, King Rehoboam became king. The empire was split. Rehoboam retained control of the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. And then Jeroboam was established as the leader of the ten northern tribes. And so he's speaking here to Israel. But then the phrase whole family changes the context. He's addressing the ten northern tribes of Israel. But then he uses this phrase against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. And it seemingly changes the context of his audience in the this moment, for he surely did not just bring the ten northern tribes out of Egypt and them alone, but all, all of his covenant people, he brought them out of Egypt. Now, this is important, because in mentioning this, in mentioning this historical event, he's reminding the people of 
in their history. He's reminding them of their past. He's reminding them of their origins. He's reminding them of a time when their dependence and their need upon God was kind of at its height. A lot different than how it is now. See, how it is now, 760 B.C., is anything but that. They've experienced this golden age, this economic boom, this time of peace and prosperity. And here's the real the real observation I think is worth noting. When we find ourselves in, in, in moments in our lives where we're, we're self-sufficient, that's very problematic. It, it tends to be the, the more self-sufficient that we are, the easier that it becomes to need or depend upon God. The easier it is to not need to depend upon God, to depend upon Him less, to need Him less. He's reminding them of a time when their need for him was, was very great, very different than the time that they're experiencing right now. But that's the challenge, right? When things are going our way, right? When, 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 whether it's school or work or job or money, when things are going our way, we tend to, to forget just how much we need God and just how much we depend upon God. Self-sufficiency is a dangerous place to be. See, self-sufficiency, it doesn't glorify God. Self-sufficiency, that glorifies us. It glorifies us. Even here, reflecting back in my own life, my, my own little like mini wilderness experience where there, you know, I'm thinking back, well, what was the time? Like he's bringing the people's attention back to their history, back to their past, back to their origins of a time of great need, great dependence upon him. And, and so I'm thinking about like even in my own life, my own experiences where, man, where was I? At what point in my life did I really need and really depend upon him? And some of you guys are familiar with, with this story. Um, you know, we're coming up on year four that we started Lynchburg City Church in, in August. But for the first three years, uh, three years in a month, I think, I was here, I was working, I was pastoring, um, had a full-time job, and no, no, no paycheck. All pro bono for the first three years, three years in a month. And I don't say that to, you know, elicit sympathy. I'm just stating the observation and making a point here. Like, it was a time in my life where I really needed and depended upon God. And at the time, during this narrative, I was getting engaged to Diana, and I remember telling her, like, yeah, like, I've got a full-time job. And she's like, oh, well, how much does it pay? And I was like, oh, nothing. So um, <laughs> I'm not sure how I convinced her to, to marry me, but um, glory to God alone. Um, glory to God alone. But it, it was a time in my life where it wasn't like I was living, going from paycheck to paycheck to paycheck, because there was no paycheck. It was a time where very much like these people, like this wilderness, and I'm this wilderness experience, and, and every month I'm just like, God, I don't know how I'm going to get to the next month, God. Like, if you don't show up, I'm not going to make it. We're not going to make it. God, 
God, you got to help. And, and here in verse 1, he, he points them to their past, to their history, reminding them of these events. Like the fact that they even left Egypt was miracle after miracle. And then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And somehow they had enough to eat. Somehow they made it day after day, week after week. They got through. Glory to God alone. And he's reminding them. The danger is they're now in a position. They've been experiencing this golden age, this boom, this economic uh, just prosperity. Over the last 40 years, they've drifted from the path of instruction. And they've found themselves really in a much more self-sufficient place. And the dangers of self-sufficiency is that oftentimes, and that's not always, but the temptations is, is when we become more and more self-sufficient, we tend to need and depend upon God less. Now, I don't normally say that being needy or codependent in a relationship is, is healthy. In fact, I think pretty much like almost always, it's not healthy to, to be in a re- relationship with someone um, and you're needy or codependent. And this is really, whether it's romantic or platonic, it's, it's not always healthy. But there is one, I would like to at least offer one ex- exemption. And that is our relationship with God. See, it's really good to be needy and codependent in that relationship because that that glorifies God. It doesn't glorify God when you're like, hey, I got it going on. <laughs> I'm good. I don't need your help. I'll let you know like if I do. That doesn't glorify God. That glorifies you. See, what glorifies God is when you are needy, when you are desperate, when you're not going to make it to the next day or next week apart from Him doing what He did for these people that they've seemingly forgotten. Don't let me forget, God. Don't let us forget. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought out of the land of Egypt. You've forgotten. Verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only. Like, just you. Nobody else. Just you, Israel. Not Assyria. Not Babylon. Not Moab. Not Edom. Not the Philistines. Not Phoenicia. Just you. I've only known you. It's just been us. I've had this special relationship with you. I chose you. I could have chose someone else. I just chose you. And we've had this special bond. This special relationship. And despite that, despite my goodness from the past and what I've done for you, what have you done? You haven't done what's right. Therefore, verse 2, therefore I will punish you for all your sins, for all your iniquities. Yeah, Israel's got this special relationship with the Lord, a relationship that he's had with no one other than just them. And, and, And with that comes a special responsibility. But they've skirted that responsibility. No doubt, as we saw last week in part two, right? Well, huh, but we're the covenant people of God, right? We've got immunity, like a lot of Christians say today. Oh, I'm a Christian, right? I done did that, Pastor, so I'm good to go. And then we think that, like, you know, we've got our get out of jail free card and everything's going to be okay and we're not going to experience God's judgment on us, that, that we're not going to be punished, that we're just going to be able to have a, a free ticket to do whatever we want to do. Well, 
you think about this, just step back for a second, okay? Especially you guys who've been here the last three weeks. The things Amos is saying aren't very popular right now, okay? I mean, I mean, some of you like coming here and being yelled at, but <laughs> but you think about like what Amos Amos is delivering this message, this oracle, and it's pretty radical. Like the things that are coming out of his mouth right now, pretty radical. This message of judgment, no one wants to hear that. And no doubt, some of the people probably protested against what he said. Right? They probably did. I mean, part two, what do we see in chapter two, verse 11? Remember the Nazarites and the prophets? The people say, Nazarites and prophets, these people that God had given as spiritual leaders, they told the prophets, you're not going to prophesy, you're not going to tell us, you're, you're going to just shut your mouth, prophets, and Nazarites, you're going to join in with us and doing the things you shouldn't be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. I imagine that there's some people who are pretty bent out of shape right now hearing this really unpopular, even somewhat harsh message that Amos is saying. How to be Amos right now? Uh, I don't envy him to deliver this message. And so in the following verses, 3, 4, 5, and 6, he's going to, he's going to build a case. He's going to give a series of rhetorical arguments in which the answer is very much assumed in order to try to, to better communicate this really unpopular message that, he, that he's delivering. And so this is what he says in verse 3. He says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? So in the midst of this unpopular message, he says, verse 3, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Well, now here's something that his audience can get behind, right? They say, of course not. Of course not. Here's the idea. Like, if I want to go, say, like Nate right here, if I wanted to, like, go hang out with you, I don't just walk out my front door and then it'd be like, oh, where, where's Nate? Like, no, I'm going to call him up and be like, hey, let's hang out. Okay, where are we going to meet? What time are we going to meet? We'll meet at this time and we'll meet at this place. Okay. And that's the whole point that he's saying. Like, it's pretty common sense here. That's why this is a rhetorical question. It needs no answer. He says, do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? The answer is, of course not. The, the reason that they're walking together is because they've agreed to meet. Okay. It's easy so far. Then verse 4. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing. I had to look this up because I don't know about lions very much. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I mean, the original audience, they would have they would have got it right away. But I'm, I'm several centuries removed and I'm like, I, I don't know. So this is what Amos's audience would have known. They would have known that when a lion hunts, a lion is very sneaky. A lion is very quiet. Stealth. And then right at the moment that the lion is about to capture the prey, it lets out this roar that terrifies and freezes the prey, making it easier for the lion to capture it. That's what he's saying here, and his audience would have known this. And, and the following, does a lion roar in the forest when, when he has no, no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he's taken nothing? So the assumed answer is, well, no, of course not. And yet there's very similar imagery that's being used here in verse 4 that if you remember part 1 of this series was also used in chapter 1, verse 2 when Amos shows up with a message. Who does he say the message is from? He, he says this in, in verse 2 of chapter 1. 
The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Here's the point. In the same way that the lion is not just roaring to roar, there's a point and a reason, a cause and an action. Amos is relaying the roar of the Lord. He's relaying the message that God has. He's bringing a really unpopular message that the people probably really don't like at all, and they're protesting. But he's not bringing it because they're innocent. He's not relaying the roar of the lion of the tribe of Judah for no reason at all. He wouldn't be bringing this unpopular message, this harsh message, if they hadn't done anything wrong. And that's the point. Yeah, the, the message that, that I'm bringing is, is unpopular, but there's a, there's a reason that I'm relaying the roar of the Lord from Zion, from Jerusalem. There's a reason. Just like there's obviously a reason that a, a lion lets out a roar right before it's about to capture and seize its prey. And then verse 5, he, he continues this with these rhetorical questions. Does a bird fall into a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Well, no, there'd have to be a trap for the bird to fall into it. Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? No, that the snare will spring up once once it's caught something. Of course, I know there's some person that's like, well, it might have had a mechanical like like difficulty and it just might have accidentally gone off. Well, that's there's always one person that wants to chime in. So I'll just eliminate that now so it doesn't come up in small group. We save some time. But my point is this. is like, the point is, is what he's saying is there's, there's, a, there's a cause behind the action. This isn't complicated. His audience, even though they would have thought his message was very unpopular and probably not liked it, they can at least get behind him and agree on these things. And so he continues with some more rhetorical questions. Verse 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Amos' audience would have known that when the trumpet was blown in the city, that that was not good. That that was alerting the citizens that some type of enemy was approaching would have brought panic, would have brought fear into them. They, they would have just blown the trumpet for no reason. There, there would have been a reason. And then he says this, probably one of the more peculiar verses you'll see in the Bible, one that I've quoted a lot of times here at Lynchburg City Church. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? I saw that verse a couple years ago, and uh, it's really changed my theology a lot. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? That's... Wow, that's something, huh? Just let you look at that for a second. So, just like for every other example that he gave, there's a cause for the action. And Amos suggests the sovereignty of God over all things, even disaster. Now, this is something that his audience they would have had to agree with. Because to not agree with what Amos is saying is to then say, well, if the Lord's not bringing the disaster, some other national deity is. And they would have in no ways, in no way compromised on that. 
Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has brought it? Disaster. Earthquake, tornado, hurricane. Might think, if that wasn't in the Bible, you might think what I was saying right here wasn't so good. But it's there, so what do we do with that? See, I know what we do with this. I got it. Earthquake happens. Oh, I know the answer. The seismic place under the earth begin to rotate back and, okay, next. And then you say, well, the, the hurricane came. It moved up the Atlantic seaboard. It caused millions of dollars worth of damage. It, it killed several hundred people. But, but the reason it happened, because we're always trying to reason things through, right? There's always a, a, an explanation for something. Uh, well, there was a high pressure system and a low pressure system and they came together. And that's why. I wouldn't deny those things, but those are secondary causes. Those are secondary causes. Amos, Amos is more concerned with the ultimate cause. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord. Does disaster come to the city unless the Lord has done it? No. When disaster comes to a city, ultimately God is sovereign over that disaster that comes. God is sovereign over that disaster. God controls everything in the universe. There are no protons, neutrons, electrons that are somehow just off beyond the control of God, that He controls everything. Now, oftentimes we struggle with this because we'll say, well, if that's the case, then, then God is not, not good. Um, and I'll, I'll, let me, let me work with you for a second on this. And I mentioned this in the Philemon sermon. God is compassionate to that. I would fully agree. He's compassionate. God does not sin. Doesn't sin. And God does not remove human responsibility. I would agree with all of those things. And yet God is sovereign over everything, including the storm, including disaster. You say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, neither does the Trinity. Is God one or three? Because if you apply the same logic, you say, well, he's got to be either one or he's got to be three. See, the Bible says it, so we should take it. Even hard passages like Amos chapter three, verse six, on faith. God governs all things, including disaster. This is very in line with Ephesians chapter 111, which Paul says God governs all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, Paul either meant all things or he meant all things. See, we love to attribute the sovereignty of God and say, man, God's in control, right? God's sovereign. That's what we mean. God's sovereign. He's in control. But then we like to say, well, but, well, he is, but he's not. And then we like to create gaps in his sovereignty and make hash out of this book. That's, that's what we do. So God is governing all things according to the counsel of his will. Amos says, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has brought it? The oppression that the Israelites have experienced prior to this golden age, prior to this last 40 years, this economic boom, when they were under the thumb of the Arameans and the king of Damascus for three decades, even that was governed by God. It either was or it wasn't. And Amos is making it very clear that God's either responsible for things, even uncomfortable things like disaster. And if he's not, well, then some other national deity is. And of course, the people would have not accepted that whatsoever. Whatsoever. You see, for me, this is a verse that brings great comfort to know that God doesn't just govern 
over the departure of uncomfortable things, but God also governs over its arrival. Does disaster come to the city unless the Lord has brought it? We have a very, very big God who governs every single thing in the universe. So he finishes these rhetorical questions. And I like to think verse 7 and 8 kind of function as the credibility stamp, right? He needs a credibility stamp because he is saying things that people don't like. No one likes hearing that they're bad and they're going to get lit up. That's my paraphrase. So this is what he says in verse 7. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Amos is saying, like, I wouldn't be here preaching this harsh message, saying things that I know you're protesting against, saying things that you're you're obviously not going to like. Like, I wouldn't be here. I'd rather just, like, be preaching a sermon on, like, relationships or, you know, telling jokes or something. But I'm here and I'm saying this. And the fact is, I wouldn't be saying this unless God had revealed this word to me in the first place. Like, there's a lot. I'd rather be back in Tekoa, his hometown. I'd rather be back in Tekoa, doing my my sheep business on, you know, on the side. I'd rather be doing that. I'd rather be doing a million other things. But I'm here because God's revealed his message to me. Verse 8 continues this line of thinking. The lion has roared. Once again, very much the same imagery of chapter 1, verse 2. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? You go back to chapter 2, verse 11. Remember, they were essentially telling the Nazarites and the prophets to shut up. They didn't want to hear what God had to say. They didn't want to hear and be told that they were wrong. And he's saying... Guys, I heard the Lord give me this message. I know you don't like it, but I'm much more afraid of him than you. And I've got to speak this message to you. Even though I know like it's unpleasant, I've got to speak this. I cannot not speak this. So verse 7 and verse 8 serve as his credibility in the midst of A very unpopular message he's bringing. And then verse 9. I love verse 9. It was probably my most fun to unpack verse 9. For those of you who are sarcastic, you'll like verse 9 a lot. Oh, there you are. (laughs) Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod. Now, that's a city city within the Philistine kingdom. Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and to the strongholds in the land of Egypt. And say, assemble, gather yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, on our, on our mountains, and then come see the great tumults within her. Come see this. Come see that the tumults, the unrest, the panic, and the oppressed in her midst. So let's, let's just break this down. He picks the Philistines and the Egyptians, no doubt, because Israel had experienced much oppression and much cruel treatment at their hands. They have first-hand experience of, of what it means to be oppressed and mistreated by the Philistines and the Egyptians. And he says, listen, go send out messengers and we'll send some invites to them. Now, I don't think that he meant 
for anyone's ears except their own, but he's trying to make a point here. He's like, hey, let's go invite them and let's bring them here and they can come up on the top of the mountains and look down at everything going on. They can see all the garbage going on. They can see the unrest, the panic, the cruelty, the oppression. He said, We're, it's essentially the equivalent of saying this. Hey, let's go invite Bashar al-Assad. He's been a bad guy in the world for the last couple of years, so he gets to be my sermon illustration today. Let's go invite Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian leader who kills his own people. And while we're at it, why don't we invite some of the ISIS commanders and we'll have them into town over a weekend, kind of do a brunch, you know, a little meet and greet, and then, and then we'll give them a kind of a clinic on how they can better oppress other people and how they can better be cruel to other people and how they can better be evil. We'll give them some tips. Like they need any tips. They've experienced much cruelty and oppression at the hands of the Philistines and the Egyptians. They don't need to give them any tips. They don't need to give them any pointers. They don't need to give them any advice. You see, bringing them, gathering to see what's going on, should result in God being glorified. People come in, and what do they see? Hopefully they see representations of the great God King. But for many times, especially for those of us who claim to be Christians, they don't see that. They just see a complete joke. The Philistines and the Egyptians, yeah, they should invite them in. And what they should be seeing is God honoring, God exalting behavior. And what does he say? Panic, unrest, oppression, evil. It's like, anybody have a problem with that? I step back and I think, you know, people come in, if we invite people, what do they see? If they hang out with us? Do they see like, you know, quote unquote, Sunday only Christians? I'm like, man, you act a lot different today than you do Monday through Saturday. He says this in verse 10, they do not know how to do right declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds, they're so twisted, they're so evil, they don't know how to do right. And we wonder why God's furious. Verse 11 and 12, they're very much linked together. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, verse 11, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defense from you. And your stronghold shall be plundered. So he paints the picture of what's going to be coming. It's not good. It's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's not going to be fun. An enemy is going to come and just going to light them up. And then he says this in verse 12. He says, thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. So how do we understand this? So verse 11, here's the image. Bad guys are coming, right? Their enemies are going to come and they're going to light them up. And then verse 12, he paints this kind of very cultural picture for us. Now, this is I had to do some investigating here because I didn't understand what, what was going on. Got a blue-collar guy, got a shepherd. He's watching the sheep, right? And I know this might sound silly, but it helps me to kind of picture, envision what's happening. So, you know, someone comes, they drop the sheep off at like sheep daycare. I know it's not sheep daycare, but just work with me, okay? I, huh, I'm not that smart. So he drops him off at, 
And sheep daycare drops off 10 sheep. And so at the end of the day, he was going to want the shepherd to produce all 10 sheep, right? If there's nine sheep, we're going to have a problem. So the shepherd's watching the sheep. And then at the end of the day, they come to pick up the sheep. And guess what? There's nine sheep. We're going to have a problem, right? I mean, imagine if those were kids. Like, we'd have a problem. I dropped 10 off. There's only nine. So the shepherd's in big trouble. But if the shepherd... If the shepherd can give a legitimate reason why there's only nine sheep instead of ten, he can escape. He can escape the consequences. But he can't simply just give a defense and say, well, a a wild animal came and ravaged the sheep, and that's why there's only nine. He needs to be able to produce some evidence. If he's able to produce, say, an ear of the sheep or a leg of the sheep, then, then he can escape the judgment that would be to come. And that's the picture that Amos gives us here. He says, when God comes, and he's going to bring this enemy against you, and this enemy is going to light you up, some will escape. But it is a very pessimistic forecast. Because they're going to escape in the same way that the sheep did. Look at verse 12. So shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. That the number of Israelites who survive this disaster will be like the few mutilated pieces left over after the wild animal comes and attacks. Like there's just a, a few scraps, like, like salvaged pieces of salvaged furniture from like a bombed out city. Part of a, a corner of a couch. You know, think, think of like a bombed out city, just, just little scraps and fragments. He's like, when God comes and when God brings this punishment, yes, a few of you will escape, but it will be a very terrible and ugly sight. It will be very bleak and pessimistic when this happens, when this occurs. And so this is what he says, verse 13 and 14. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts that on the day I punish Israel for his sins, for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. Bethel, it means house of God. House of God, that's what Bethel means. And if you remember the story in Genesis 28, 11 to 17, or Genesis 35, 1 to 7, you may remember that that's a pretty important place, Bethel. Bethel is where Jacob first encountered God above the the stairway to heaven. And it was there at Bethel where altars had been um, created to worship the Lord. But that's the problem. As I've said throughout the first two sermons, um, lots of religious activity has been going on. The problem is that's all it is, just religious activity. Just religious activity. You see, the, the worship that took place at Bethel, so what type of worship was that? Well, there was worship that happened, but it was also pagan worship. In fact, a century earlier, Jeroboam 1, according to 1 Kings 12, 28, Jeroboam 1 had actually set up golden calves for the worship at Bethel. And Jehu, you may remember him from part one of this series, Jehu had the opportunity to destroy them, but he didn't. 2 Kings 10, 28, he didn't. 
He could have, he didn't. The north, the ten northern tribes of Israel, they've essentially always participated in the worship of other gods, including throwing their children in human sacrifices, throwing them into, into fires and burning them alive. They thought their worship was right, but it wasn't right at all. They thought it was, but it wasn't. It was pagan. It was very, very pagan. So he says, I'm going to cut off the horns of the altar. According to 1 Kings chapter 150 and 1 Kings chapter 228, the horns of the altar were essentially a place of asylum. That's a place where you could essentially go, hold onto the horns, and you were safe. You were secure, like nobody could touch you. Be like if you did some like something really, really bad, you could go seek asylum at this embassy or whatever. You go in the horns of the altar, that's asylum. And so the imagery that's conveyed in cutting off the horns is that Israel... Israel would no longer have a place of asylum. Israel would no longer be getting away. And I just stop and I think about God's patience here, guys. You know, up to this point, we we think about the last 40 years. But it's very clear from the reference here at Bethel that this type of garbage had been going on for over a century. Over a century. Like not, okay, I've been doing things I shouldn't be doing for the last week, not for the last month, not for the last year. Over a century of just garbage. Think about how patient God is and how good God is. I mean, he could have just like that and been done with him, and he, and he doesn't. Like, d- like despite, despite their infidelity, their unfaithfulness, what does he do? He sends, he sends Hosea. And most notably, Amos during this time period to be like, you guys have got to get your act together. This is going on for far too long. Like, yeah, like you you may think you're getting away with it. You may think that nobody knows what you're doing. God knows what's going on and he's not happy. He's not happy at all. And yet, many of these people, they thought they were worshiping God. They thought they were worshiping, they genuinely thought that they were, they were, they were worshiping God. It reminds me of uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 2. They have a zeal for God, but without knowledge. You see, it matters. It matters. It's not just enough to be like, man, did you feel the Holy Spirit in there? Man, the music was like on par. Like, yeah, I could feel the third member of the Trinity. He was just all over the place. Um, and it was just like, man, the Lord was there. Um, I, you know, I have conversations sometimes with people like this, and that's oftentimes how they respond. And it's always... And their favorite member of the Trinity is always the Holy Spirit, always the third person, not, not to like underemphasize it. But oftentimes I, I can't help but think maybe we should slow things down, right? Like Romans 10, 2, they have a zeal for God, but without knowledge. Like it's not just enough to think that, think that you're worshiping God. It's not just enough to, to think that, you know, just because it feels good, right? Because man, the, the pastor, he was, he was preaching, right? And the band, man, they were on par. It's not enough. They have a zeal for God, but without knowledge. The people here, they're, they're worshiping God. They, they genuinely think they're, they're worshiping God in the right way, and they're not. It matters how we think about God. It matters how we worship God, and the criteria is not experience. It cannot be only experience. And, and for many people, that, that's what it is. And this book, it just takes like a backseat. Like, I mean, I've been to services where this hasn't even been opened. But man, like, it was like, it was happening. 
I'm like, you know, that, that seems dangerous. Seems dangerous. And so this is what he says in closing in verse 15. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house. And the houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall come to an end, declares the Lord. So he references here winter houses, summer houses, really extravagant houses. I mean, these houses are great houses. These houses are the best houses. And the problem isn't that they've got summer houses or winter houses or really extravagant houses. Um, if anything, it just characterizes this, well, excuse me, what, what really would be only something that kings could buy, but it's just an indicator of this economic boom, this golden age they've experienced. Like, a lot of people that wouldn't normally be able to get these, they're getting them. Like, things and times are good. The problem isn't that they have a winter house or a summer house or an extravagant house. That The issue is how they acquired those things. And as we saw, especially in part two of this sermon, they've acquired it in very evil ways. On the backs of the poor and the innocent and the righteous. They've taken advantage of other people. They've cut others down to build themselves up. That's the issue. The issue is that they've done this, they've acquired this by oppressing other people. I mean, that's why he says, oh, invite the Egyptians, invite the Philistines to come. We'll, we'll give them a, a lesson on how they can better oppress people. Why? Because they've been doing that to their own people. The issue is not they have summer, winter homes, extravagant homes. The issue is that they've just totally mistreated a certain class of individuals in Israel. And uh, and God's not happy with that. He's, he's not, not happy whatsoever in the slightest They've abused people. They've neglected people. We saw in part two, they, ha they have the ability to help these poor people, and they haven't. In fact, they've done the opposite. Like people, and it's believed that they come, you know, they borrowed money to buy like a pair of sandals, and they, they don't have the money to necessarily pay this for the sandals. And they say, all right, well, you didn't, couldn't pay the sandals back. This was selling you to slavery. But it was just $15, right? Or it was just 30 bucks, or it was just, it was 80 bucks, or whatever it was. It, it, I'll get you the money for the sandals that I borrowed. Nope, we're selling you into slavery. That's what we saw last week. That's why they say, hey, let's put on a clinic for the Egyptians and the Philistines. We'll show them how to oppress people. Because you do such a good job at it. It's just jokes. And it's so important that we understand this because oftentimes we'll look at people, whether individuals or larger groups, and we'll say, man, God must be blessing them. You see that home they got? Man, God must be blessing them. You see that car they got? Man, and when we use these worldly things like wealth as an indicator of, man, God's blessing, need I remind us that the word blessed used 112 times in the New Testament, not one time does it ever refer to material prosperity. You put that in your lunchbox and take it with you on your way out. And we do that, right? Or we look at like churches and if it's a big church and it's a great, you know, it must be a good church, right? Let me just remind, whether it's individual or whether it's even corporate body, bodies of people, like there are, and my, my friend Josh told me this. He said, Joe, you gotta be careful, you know, engaging the success of a church because there are some churches, there are massive churches with millions and millions of dollars. I'll tell you what, Joe, he said, some churches, they're a mile wide, but they're only an inch deep. Those aren't, those aren't necessarily always good indicators. Let me, let me be really clear, like, life apart from God, life apart from God on your own path to doing it your own way, that can yield material gain. That definitely can. 
It can yield short-term material gain, but it will most definitely result in, if you are like these people, eternal loss. It's a dangerous game, following in the path of these folks to, to do what they did. Yeah, you, you, may, you may have some short-term material gains, but at what cost? matters how you live your life every day of the week. You may remember what Jesus says in Mark 8, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then loses his soul? It's not worth it. It's not. It matters. Every day of the week matters that we not just profess to know God. That's, that's not enough. Titus 1.16 says, they profess to know God, but they deny God by their actions. That's the covenant people of God right now. And don't forget, as we learned last week, they're not immune just because they have the title of being the covenant people of God. They're not immune. So as the band comes, I'd like to just pray for us real quickly. God, we love you. And uh, thank you for the story in Amos. My prayer today for us is that we would we would remember. We would remember. That's chapter 3, verse 1. He calls the people to, to remember their past, remember their history, remember their origin, remember your faithfulness, remember the times of dependence upon you. It's good to be needy for you. So God, we need your help. Because it doesn't take a whole lot to deviate from the path that you've given to us. It doesn't take a whole lot to get to the point where these people are. And I know that sounds crazy because it seems like, well, we're, we're not doing what they're doing. Lord, I don't want that to be our response. Like apart from your grace and your goodness, God, we're moments away from being like these people. Apart from your grace. So God, keep us don't let us go. Help us, God, to be consistent in how we live our lives. To be examples. To do right by all people. God, I don't want to be a joke. I don't, I don't want to be a joke. I don't want to be a guy who stands up here preaches this message, and then the rest of the week, my life contradicts the things that I'm saying. I don't want that for myself, and I don't want that for these people in here. So Lord, I, I pray with St. Augustine, and he's, as, he, as he'd say centuries ago, Lord, command what you will, and give what you command. Enable us to do the things that you want us to do, that you've instructed us to do. Give us ears to hear. Grant us hearts of repentance. And if need be, God, if need be, God, bring the hurt on us. If only it would prevent us from eternal consequences. We pray this, Lord, in your name. Amen.